This one's going to be called, because you'll see that it basically is all about this pitiful or the impenitent. But then, though his focus is on them, we also need to see who his heart has been addressing. Pleasing are the penitent. Pitiful are the impenitent. Pleasing are the penitent. And so we'll take a look at that word. Here we go. In, in verse 20 of chapter 11 right now, this has been a fairly full discourse. Jesus talking to a multitude and personally, as he's doing right now, which is dealing with um, the pharisaical critic, the ones that have been given opportunity to share about the Lord, to reveal in their position as priest the grace of God, and they're challenging him as God. Jesus is going to cite right now the things that have comparatives with regard to previous generations who were judged very swiftly. And they were judged swiftly because in the length of time that God gave them graciously, they did not turn from their wickedness. We can probably say that historically that has margin of understanding. When we see that our culture so easily entangles itself in the things that do not please God, and when we see a world right now that seems to be on fire, doesn't it? past two years, cities burning, chaos, rebellion. We have things that our government does not honor God with. And we have now a world that has broken out in a severe expression, in my opinion, of wickedness, which is over in Ukraine from Russia. And you're just going, how could this be? Well, Jesus prophesied that in the latter days, these things indeed would happen. It's just that we always think it's some other group of people, not those that seemingly uh, have civility within their history. Not perfectly, that is true. But we tend to, to say that for a majority of the world, apart from particular schisms that come up and rivalries that show themselves, we have an expectancy of civility, and especially when you're really next door neighbors. This is one of those things we're going, how could there be rockets and bombs going off and casualties? Well, from the perspective of God, he would say that is likened to what happens when there are before him those that do not turn to him, but turn contrary to his ways. And I'm not saying that exclusively with regard to simply Russia attacking Ukraine. I'm simply saying that's a nation, world, 
a government system that is manifesting crises and it's affecting the innocents as war does. And so as Jesus moves into this particular theme right now, he has already made mention with regard to a dirge or an illustration using kids that easily can be childish, which they can be, and not really understand the full context of the severity of what is happening, almost to a mockery is what he used when he says, we played the flute for you and you did not dance and we mourned to you and you did not lament. This kind of idea of what children sometimes expect. And so in chapter 11, again, picking this up, Jesus having been insulted with regard to what he has been presumed to be doing, as well as John the Baptist and what he as well had been doing. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Not all of them have been categorized to this point in the Gospel of Matthew. But we do know that at least five of what have probably is calculated about 10 that have been cited so far have been credited with his own city, adopted city, Capernaum. This is where you could have seen him stroll the streets. You could have seen him so easily down by the Sea of Galilee talking to people, touching people. It probably was not complete madness in multitudes while in Capernaum. It probably had ebbs and flows of both attraction and distraction. But he's saying that in at least the time that had been spent there, that it would have been sufficient now to indict what historically Jesus, God, is saying a community of people had been indicted and severely judged. He moves into that by naming these cities, and the word that he's using here is that they did not repent. Hence the idea there is not turning from their wickedness, not being sorrowful for their offense. And we might say, well, what, what specifically was that offense? Just how sinful were they? Okay, that's not even the point that's being brought out right now. Because sometimes when we say that or want information concerning it, it's to justify perhaps something that we would say, not as bad, doing pretty good, not worried about it. And that can be one of the things that also would be cited as pitiful because it's important to have a conviction of error. And especially when we're talking about that which concerns eternity and even as our songs were reflecting a God who made provision to spend eternity with him, 
you know, to live actually in the tough expectations that life imposes in a glorious, confident connection with God. Even for us right now, uh, very often as I'm driving, I'm going, okay, so what's going on right now? And I'm, I'm wanting there to be a turning away from wickedness. Now, that means in the civility that we need, and globally, it's just so hard to believe we're here again on such a massive level of violence. It's hard to see a world, you know, ushering political, you know, punishments or charges of, you know, sinister behavior, but it doesn't seem to be having any effect. It's not changing what appears to be the aggression of Russia. And the whole world is groaning and it will be causing problems. Well, God sees, this is just, what, nine or eight or nine days. God has seen this since the beginning of time when man sinned. And he's seen it in the particular component parts of of how much damage it does, the consequence of sin. Jesus cites with this word, woe to you. That is a word that is to have a great, grievous um, implication. It's not like, whoa, a horse. It has grievous implication to what these cities have been charged with. Okay, so let's get back to what that means. Were they charged with the severity of wickedness? Is this, is, what he's, is this what he's talking about? Well, he's referencing the contemporary moment in time in which he, as God, made visitation upon them and what they had seen him do would have caused them to say, we want no more of ourselves. We want you. We want your life. We want your word. We want to live for you and turn from the ordinary. We want to be submitted to you, and we want to have you have charge over our lives. See, if it's based on how wicked another person is by comparison to how well we're doing, then the problem is, in fact, that we're justifying. And so these cities right now mean that in his visitation with his arms open, and his appeal that hearts change, they didn't care. Unresponsive, dead to him. And the Lord would say, in essence, death to you. Judgment will be upon you. He moves on to indict Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So these cities right now have been simply cited comparatively to the ancient cities, and they're saying what you saw was enough to provoke your heart 
to change, and you didn't. And so that's kind of grievous when change doesn't happen. This is what the indictment is concerning itself with. I say to you in verse 22, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. And so Capernaum being mentioned right now was his headquarters. And he's saying they had so much evidence and still do. Jesus didn't pull out of Capernaum, by the way. He didn't turn his back on them. He's saying they just never faced off with him. They never faced the facts that in their city, the extraordinary work of God was before them, just blind. In the same context, any community that has a church that has been established by God that is teaching the word and ministering worship and and presenting God in the manner by which honor is given to him, and they are not responding, that's a city, notice, that is accountable. You have individuals within a city, and you have a city. And the Lord seems to be speaking right now to the city itself. So some might say, well, if it's the city that he's speaking about, not addressing the individuals within the city, are they not all at the same time, then one and the same? And if there's no hope for the city, is there any hope for the individuals within the city? And so that question is very provocative, but it's, it's actually a good one to remember that there was a man, great in the faith, in fact, the father of faith, and that's Abraham. And when he had heard in his ear, when his heart was addressed by the friendship he had with God, and he realized that a city that his nephew had moved to was intrigued with, and it was up to its heart in wickedness. And Lot was in that city exercising the role as an elder, he was a city elder. He said that he could be found at the gates in community with this kinds of wickedness. It was overt. It was a perverse town. Sodom and Gomorrah was perverse. This was the town that when the offer had been made by Abraham concerning his nephew and his family, would God destroy the city for the sake of even just, and remember the numbering system that he went through, and God continued to answer for the sake of them. I won't, for the sake of those, I won't. For the sake of the few, I shall not. Until eventually what God said he would do implied ultimately as the page's turn was to move in and rescue Lot by dispatching two angels that would adjudicate with punishment. They were to 
extract Lot and his family. They were, and in their visitation, verbally insulted. They were treated as those who garnish the attention of the perverse. And the effort by God to extract Lot and his family was extraordinary. So the reason that that's important is that when we see that the cities are suffering indictment, there are individuals within cities that still will be saved. They will be rescued. Who are those? Well, those are the people within cities that have given literally themselves fully over to the Lord. They're not caught up in the junk. They're waiting to be caught up in the air. And in the interim period, they're doing the things that they can do. Lot was never credited for doing the things that would be pleasing to God. And that's important to understand, too. Because there are many that feel they can never please God. Those are individuals motivated like the Pharisees for works. So they work, 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 work to get favor and favor and more favor from God. But there are also individuals who labor and they do so in love, waiting upon the Lord and waiting for his arrival. We're waiting upon the Lord right now. We're also waiting for his arrival to come and rescue us. Brookings is a nice place, but it's not a perfect place, nor is any city within the construct of the contiguous United States, state after state that connects to another state. They're nice places within our country to live, but they're not perfect places at all. So what's God going to do about that? It will be a judgment that will be fair because God knows who are his and he knows how to get us out of the predicament. He knows how to quench the wickedness by removing wickedness. And we've seen that. Cleansing by God, though, is what we would call an inward work of the heart for man or woman and child to change. If it's the church, historically it's called an awakening or a revival. And that's an important term to understand. When what at given moments of time provoked lethargy, the Lord inspires by a quickening of the heart, and there's an awakening. There's revival. There's this need to not outperform or perform better, but actually be transformed in the fullness of what God has purposed for us to be in, how we ought to live. So as the rebuke goes out, as the comparisons are made, he's now which is very interesting, or what we would call an irony, saying these guys will do better even though they were judged severely than the ones who presently have rejected God face to face. So that message is important because as he comes as a good shepherd 
and the lover truly of the soul of men, it's good to know and it's right to have an appreciation for others not secure in the eternal outcome of judgment. We believing in the Lord, putting our trust in God, are saved from that judgment. We're marked. We're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We have nothing else to prove. What we do on the day-to-day, though, is having God prove us. We move through tests and trials. We move through times in which decisions that we have made have been then given over to ask God, what do you want in this decision that I have made, the action that I actually did engage in. And so we have this very live and vital relationship with God in which he's shaping us and he's changing us and he's challenging us, but we're literally in this march of grace to the outcome of not a judgment of condemnation, but a judgment of reward. See, when you get into a judging contest, usually those who are contestants are actually waiting to be chosen, not rejected in condemnation, but actually chosen with commendation, all the way from first place down to wherever the place is in. But usually in contests, nobody entering in presumes that they're going to be condemned for entering. There will one be that is going to be exalted and rewarded supremely and down the line, and that will happen. There's going to be rewards that the Lord will give to every man according to his works, and that ought to be actually something that is exciting. Not, ooh, what am I going to get? But I can't wait to see what God has in store for me, what I will receive. And that's just like the enemy to make us believe we were so close, but so messed up. Cancel that order for rich. Torch what once had been purposed for him. He blew it in the last second. That isn't going to be taking place. When Lot got this do-over, literally evacuated before the judgment came down, which was fire from heaven, he had a fresh start. It shows us that, in fact, with even fresh starts, there, there can be a tendency to drift right back into it. The New Testament indicates that Lot's soul was vexed both night and day in living in that city, or if you would, having an indulgement or an indulgement or an acceptation within that corruption. He didn't like it. He lost a lot of sleep over it. His family became corrupted in it. And yet he was not erased from the annals of spiritual history. He was used as an example of what can happen when a city will be judged and even God at his very best in patience rescues our tendency to go and move back into it. But the Lord would say again to the individual within the city, I've got my eye upon you. 
hope that city turns to me. I hope they hear the message that's coming from the church, from me. But I've got my eye on you in that city. So we can all flee from the city that's corrupt, or we can say, I'm making my stand in the city that God might rule over this place. We're going to put people in positions within the city that actually love God and will be ambassadors of him in the position of authority that they hold. And it doesn't mean simply in government. Guess what? It means that where you're at is where God can be seen. If you're into that revelation, if you believe that your life reflects the best of God, then guess what? People will remember you and their heart will be drawn to ask themselves, that guy, that woman, everything about what I feel is so wrong in my life is being completely overwhelmed by them living life so well, well beyond what I'm doing. We just have that convincing story that we're living out. So we don't just flee the corruption of cities. We ask the Lord, how would you desire me to shine in the place that I'm at with the time that I have, the gifts that you've granted to me? Woe unto you, Brookings. Woe unto you, San Francisco. You could name any city and there could be a woe unto you. But with that, we have the obligation as a church to say, it's not woe. Not entirely. It's wonderful. We have a wonderful Savior. This woe indicates a judgment that will be with severity. But we have the ability to say, whoa, God, in his glory, in his mercy, in his compassion, his forgiveness, his planning for me to be with him in a place so extraordinary to any comparison I have. Whoa, God, you're good. But to be mindful that for others, whoa, unto that city. Whoa, unto that individual. And Jesus is with severity giving correction. It's a rebuke. When God rebukes, it's for the purpose of changing a person's direction. You can see that applied with the little animals in your life. When we have animals that we love and they ultimately need a rebuke, a corrective word, what do you see? You'll see a response from them. Most of the time, we'll see a response from them. I don't know if I can fully make this, you know, relate. But we had cooked a dinner uh, last night, or we're preparing to cook it. That was it. And so we were kind of waiting as to when it went on the grill and the potatoes and so forth. And my, our dog, Chloe, jumped up into my lap in this interim period of 
when we're going to serve, and Christy was preparing to go to a prayer meeting. And so it was just about timing and waiting. And so Chloe jumped in my lap, and she does this thing that's kind of like an appeal. And it's funny, because we didn't train her to do this, nor have I seen her do this with great regularity. So she jumps up, she sits facing me, and, and just looking at me. And I'm kind of going, okay, what's this about? We have to go potty? Are you wanting a snacky? And actually, it was the latter. She, she knew that there was something in the kitchen that was very intriguing to her nostrils. That's what it's about. And so then what she would do is start pawing me. And this is okay here. It's not okay here. But it was working its way up to here. Just a quick little paw. And it, it honestly felt like it was in this Disney movie. And I can believe from her perspective I was. We were getting ready to cook some steak. So it was kind of Disney. But finally I just you know, said, okay, Chloe, let's just... And all of a sudden I heard this plop on the ground. It's on the ground, not on my lap. On the ground. It was in the kitchen. And I look at... The, and the dog... Chloe does this Disney look, kind of like, at me? And she looks at the kitchen. She leaps off of my lap, bolts into the kitchen. And what had happened is it almost was, it was almost as if there was a teamwork thing happening. But our cat, Maui, had jumped on the counter, pulled a steak from the marinating dish, and they're, fun, they're funny. They really can't eat big giant. They look like they could do it, but they really can't. They don't know how to eat steak. But he knows how to get it in his teeth. And he then basically launched to the ground with this as a weight on him. So he more, he more splatted like the steak than anything else. And I saw him do this. And, and Chloe then, I looked at her, and there was no steak. It was all in her mouth. And I went over and I said, Chloe, give me that. Well, there was really nothing to see, but I didn't want her to choke. And she just turned into this. And I said, oh, my word. You were just a Disney dog, and now you are this evil little, you know, wolf doggy. And I said, Chloe, you give me that right now. So I went to her jaw to try to pinch. Couldn't budge it. Who she was in my lap was different than who she was in the kitchen. And I look at the cat going, what are you doing corrupting my home? Cat didn't care. It got a taste. But it was funny to see that both of these two were no longer really focused on mastery. They were focused on their sensories being satisfied in a moment of debauchery, of thieving. But after it was all done... The cat came along and brushed along my pants. And Chloe, when I did take my seat, because they cleaned up the floor really good. Well, Chloe did, just vacuumed it. And I took my seat. They sat. Well, the cat brushed along. But the dog came and just basked in my presence. And so the transaction or the transgression that had occurred was past. And I was back to stroking Chloe. Oh, Chloe, I'm so glad you've returned to me. 
I'm so happy that we're friends. You are everything that I've always believed in you. Though I've seen some things, I want changed in you. Good little Chloe. So she licks her lip, belches, and she falls asleep in my lap, only to be ejected because I did have to get back to cooking. And, and so maybe that's an illustration that can show you the dynamics of how we can change likewise by just an event, something that just our appetite moves towards it. And I actually thought it was funny because to some degree I was going, Chloe, you were pawing at me like very often I paw at God. Master, master, scratch, 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 looking God in the face. And he answers my prayers so extraordinarily and I thought, that is funny. God did that through a beast that actually should not have a relationship with you. That cat worked on behalf of God to bless you when apparently I wasn't willing to. <laughs> you bad master, you couldn't even read that that dog wanted a savory morsel from your hand. You had the power to give and you withheld it. So God heard the cry of Chloe, utilized the bat cat. It's a Bombay cat, so it's black and it's got interesting qualities to it. We're going to move along because uh, it's time to do that. But he says the toleration of those cities that sinned significantly to be judged in what is called this after, this after the tenure of earth when actually a judgment will be rendered, the comparison is it's gonna be far more tolerable for them in that final judgment than it will for these cities whom I came to liberate whom I literally went to the cross for. And so we have to understand that though this is historically rooted in the Jewish nation, it applies to every nation and every city within a nation and every state or province within that land that God has given to a people. God hasn't withheld his message. The evangel has gone out. Putin will be held accountable for what he's doing. He is sinister in what he has done. He's no longer somebody that's just been seated in a political position. He is now somebody that will have blood on his hands for what he has initiated. And there's a defense when blood is on the hands of a government, not through defense, but by simply aggression, and it has heinous repercussions. And I would not have thought of that in our time. My father probably, had he seen this, he would have said that's just the way World War II started with one maniacal man who had something against his neighbor and vacuumed all of us in to his stratagem of completely eliminating a people group through a genocidal act that was intentional. And that was not all that long ago, right? And it erupted in which multiple theaters of war broke out. You had the European theater and you had the Pacific. That was my dad's. 
And it was interesting with regard to that because most of you know two entirely different people groups and the manner and methods that they fought. And my dad, when the war was over, actually became dear friends of many Japanese uh, or what you'd call previous Japanese uh, military people and as well civilians. He never held a grudge against them for what they would have also been noted for, ex extreme brutality to POWs, the Nazis, extreme brutality to the POWs. We're one of the only few nations that with regard to keeping prisoners do much better. I mean, we really do. I'm not saying there aren't things that happen, but that's kind of an idea as well, that when we talk about these judgments and ultimately the containment that God will have for those who have violated the civility of the reasonability of men to live on earth without fear and wickedness, he will make right. And so even to this, you Capernaum, the very place that I'm headquartered, the place that you know me personally, I have visited you, I've been available to you, and I'm ignored by you. That's a hard billet to have, to be ignored, especially if you're God. And by the way, you can't go to Capernaum today. The things that, that were seen back then, we can only imagine because it's a skeleton compared to what it would have been back then. But it actually is a place that has preserved in it the artifacts of those days. You know, Peter's home. It's there. It's been cited archaeologically. But in terms of spirituality, the Lord would say comparatively, missed, woe to you. I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Tolerable means that by comparison, the judgment that could be rendered will be different. It doesn't mean the judgment hasn't happened nor would not happen, but it's saying from the perspective of God, how wicked Chorazin has been comparatively and Capernaum in particular, personally. At that time in verse 25, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Right, that was one of our songs tonight. That you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. So this is almost a contrast to where we left off before where children or babes were being used to show not simply their innocence, but actually their tendency to chide, you know, to kind of create a, a friction point. I mean, the kind of the neener, 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 neener. We've all seen that. We've all done that probably. But he's saying these are the babes that are pure. 
innocent truly in their spirit. And it's, to me, an interesting phrase because it says, at that time Jesus answered and said. But I'm, I'm searching right now and I'm saying, where was the question? It, it, he answered and said, I thank you, Father. So I thought that's actually a very cool phrase. Do you answer God when he's speaking to you and nobody else heard the question? To me, this is that implication. And notice that the answer isn't levied as a complaint in terms of Capernaum missing him. But what he's saying that is in this, in which I've been ignored, I've been insulted, life for me has been hard and derogatory. I'm hearing you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. See, we want everybody to know. I'm going to publish this. I'm going to let people know how irked I am, how bad I feel, how much you deserve. Mm. And that's what we are. We've all become. I say this loosely, okay? Not you guys. Publishers, though, of the bad news. The things that actually harm others in the context of what the Lord thinks about them, what we can say about them harms others. And we've all had that happen, right? You know, humorously, there's a group text that occasionally goes out to let people know what activities we're doing. And one came back, and it was a hard one for me to hear. And the phrase was simply, I want to be removed from this contact list. And it did hurt me. I thought, what? But, the <laughs> but I had some brothers that just answered so cleverly in which they didn't take the insult personally. And I remember one phrase in particular was, you ain't being removed from nothing. <laughs> that was the rebuke. And I just laughed. It actually made my heart happy that a brother would say something to the effect of, we ain't removing you from nothing. The idea is that, okay, your heart's changed towards us for reasons that you apparently are justified in. It's not changing our heart towards you. You ain't being removed from nothing. And actually that phrase really just encouraged me. But my disappointment in, in terms of why would that have even had to have been said? Okay, if you must fade from our lives, then fade. And if there must be revelation, then come and reveal yourself to us. You don't have to do the neener neener. We're keeping you posted out of love, in respect. But one guy's little answer, which to me was in the affirmative. See, because probably inside I was battling, like, oh, judge him. And the other brother was saying, we're not taking you off the roll call. God's not through with you yet. And maybe I was. I don't know. I don't feel that way, but 
At any rate, I thank you, Father. At that time, Jesus answered and said, and so maybe that's a good pondering for us. What is it that God can say to us, the Lord? And nobody hears, but inside or even by oration, we take this perspective and we thank the Lord that his revelation is to those who, like us, are babes. You have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent. That's why we have that phrase. I love the old phrase back in the oh, 50s and 60s. Wise guy, huh? That was a Three Stooges lie. I think that was Curly that was the kind of, they all said it. Wise guy, huh? You remember them. Boink! And slap. And so that was a phrase. Prudence, interesting because it suggests that there is with it the ability to weigh out options that have favorability. In other words, you, you have the ability to assess what it is you will do carefully, precautiously. These things from the wise and prudent have been hidden and you've revealed them to the babe. He focuses on those that are, if you would, in the spirit, the next generation, or in the spirit, innocent, even in the face of corruption, of the city, of the ignorance, of the arrogance, of the blatant disrespect for the Lord, the lack of acknowledging him, and so that's an encouraging word to me. Do we acknowledge God for what he has done in revelation to us as babes? And can we celebrate even when the assault on us is like salt in our wounds? Now, you know that salt in our wounds implies the sting that happens when sodium gets into that raw area of our life. And yet it's the very thing, too, that purifies. And it is the one that facilitates a, an eventual mending. That's why it doesn't always happen. I know that some things have been blamed on going into the sea with wounds. But most of the time, that saline is a cleansing and healing prescription. And so Jesus just chooses to acknowledge in praise, though he is highly insulted and hurt, I'm sure, sorrowful over the response. Oh, I see what you're doing, Lord. In my hurt, my sorrow, I see what you're doing. Jesus answered. How do we answer the Lord in our sorrow, in our hurt? Do we say, you got me in this mess. Or, Lord, why don't you take me out of this mess? He just said, oh, Lord, I see what you're doing. The wise guys and those that perhaps prudent to a fault will not enter into faith because it's time to take an examination. Lord, for the babes, thank you. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Guess what? It's God's will to give you revelation of himself 
and ultimately to the celebration of his father. I don't know how it all works. I just know that God has far more boasting points concerning you, us as individuals, as a company of people, than what the enemy wants you to believe. He wants you to believe that you're all alone, that you deserve everything wrong that's happening to you, and that God has rejected you because of that. Jesus sees it all together differently. In this, that situation that I also had sorrow in, I was provoked in, I was disrespected in, that's the God who hears your heart, knows your mind, has seen how you have taken that, and rather than personally reacting to it, you've come to me in prayer, and you're offering with your lips the right perspective. There will always be those who are not behaving towards you in what we would say is a godly manner. Concluding in 28 through 30, Jesus says this, come to me. So this is an act of obedience. This is a compelling word. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Have you had restless nights, weeks, months lately? I do get that from information. Some people say, oh my goodness, I'm so tired, so am I. <laughs> but the Lord says this to me, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And notice this, it's a promise. I will give you rest. Come to me. What is it I need? Rest. I will give you rest. A command with a fulfillment. If it's so easy, why don't we? Or what does that mean? Okay, come. What, what does that mean? I'm here. What does it mean? Great, you're here. Understand that that is coming to the Lord. Now understand, if he's speaking to you quietly, what is it that he's saying concerning changing, not the situation, but changing yourself in the situation? What is he saying? I'll give you rest, promise. Oh, that's great. Come in with fulfillment, a promise. Yes, Lord. That's what I'm, I'm coming to you. And as I'm doing that, then I'm going to take notes as to how you want this satisfied to fulfill my life. Verse 29, take. So come, that's a command with a fulfillment. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The emphasis, again, is back on rest, but the advancement is now to take this yoke. This means a submission, not only the act of obedience to come, but now a submission to do that which the Lord has prescribed. The yoke, as you know, was an instrument that was able to harness both mule and oxen. And yet in it, the implication is much more sensitive because it was designed. It wasn't just simply ugh, constrained. It was designed actually to help bear load with what? Whatever was being carried. It distributed load equitably, fairly, enough to the strength that you have so that you're not overcome with the weakness that you feel. And so the Lord's actually equated as a carpenter that probably specialized in making yokes for those who would be beasts of burden to pull. And I just think that's a clever wording, so come, that's the command. The fulfillment is I'm going to give you rest. 
The next directive is to take my yoke. Trust in obedience what he has in mind for you to do. You have to trust him in faith. It's a saving faith, and it's an empowering faith. Trust. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. This means we're students. So all of us right now, I think we can say, 28, check. Lord, thank you. 29, Lord, I am learning of you. But then he also says, what you are hearing today, take out there tonight and tomorrow. Be ready. Apply it in whatever situation you're in. Are we perfect in its application? No. I mean, maybe you guys are. I'm not. But it doesn't mean I don't want to be, and it doesn't mean I won't try to be. I have stuff that is still getting worked out of me. And the prerogative that God has in however he chooses to work on me and through whomever he chooses to do that through. My yoke is easy, promise, and my burden is light. You'll know it's his yoke if it's easy. You'll know the burden has been fully given over to the Lord when you can say light. There's something different now. It's light. So if you're able to say easy, it's not just easy now, but easy. Doesn't mean it's not requiring of me expression, extension, but it's easy. You've seen that when you take off a backpack and you let it go. You're still walking, but it's easier now. The burden's been let go of. And I like that as well. It's his burden. So you have to say, oh, by the way, Lord, this is your burden. Is that okay? Does that work well with faith and trust? If I just say, this is your burden and I'm not going to worry about it anymore? Because very often we say, okay, I got it. Your yoke is easy. Easy. But I feel like I should be helping you though with the, with the burden. And maybe the most helpful thing you can do is say, let me have that burden. It's one thing to show that you're letting go of it. It's another thing not to be concerned about it. Let me have that burden. 